HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is presented by The Brooklyn Kitchen. Learn more at brooklynkitchen.com. Borders seem to be all over the news lately. You've got trade wars, Brexit, and of course, Trump's wall. This week on Meet and 3, we're exploring how borders are created and blurred in the world of food. We try to focus a lot on the fact that they are chefs by nature, uh, that the refugee thing is just a status for them. And after the Soviet space ended, I don't think there was much research. It was all considered just Soviet food or Russian food. And I don't think it gives a lot of those cultures credit. Tune in to this week's Meet and 3 on Heritage Radio Network. That's meet plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, this is Lisa Held coming to you live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, and you're listening to The Farm Report, a Heritage Radio Network show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. So today I'm here with Andrew De Coriolis, the Executive Director of Farm Forward, an organization with a mission to promote conscientious food choices, reduce farmed animal suffering, and advance sustainable agriculture. Andrew, thanks for joining me. Thanks so much. Happy to be here, Lisa. Um, yeah, I, I, I wish you were in Brooklyn in the studio with me, but you are, I think you're in Northern California. Is that right? I am. I'm based out of San Francisco and uh, happy to be calling in from rainy SF today, though just, uh, just yesterday I was in Asheville, North Carolina at a sustainable dining summit talking with food buyers and chefs and cooks and other folks in the food industry about sourcing less and better meat. So right up our alley. Oh, interesting. Um, wait, is what's the name of the summit? Is it just called the Sustainable Dining Summit? It was yeah. It was hosted by uh, University of North Carolina Asheville. It was mostly universities and food companies from the southeast. Um, lots of folks from North Carolina, from Kentucky, Tennessee, um, and all of them engaged in one form or another in um, you know buying and serving food at scale. Huh. Interesting. Um, yeah, so I want to talk about scale. That we'll get into that for sure. Um, but um, let's let's give people a little bit of background. Um, I think um, I think the thing that strikes me about Farm Forward, 
from the get-go is that um, it's an organization with animal welfare at the core of its mission, right? Um, but unlike many other animal rights organizations um, that kind of advocate very firmly for veganism, Farm Forward's focus is not necessarily on getting people to stop eating meat. So why is that? That's a good question. Um, you know, part of it is just a, is a practical uh, answer. Uh, you know, our, our sense is that, and the consumer trend, trend research uh, sort of bears this out, that, you know, people continue to eat animal products. They eat poultry, eggs, and dairy. Um, and we think it's likely that people will continue to do that for the foreseeable future. Right. And given that's the case, I think we have an obligation to ensure that farmed animals are raised in the best possible conditions. Got it. So what do those conditions look like? Like what does um, ethical animal agriculture, as you describe it, what does it look like? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question too. <laughs> Just a tiny, um, I mean, like <laughs> very small question. Yeah, I mean, as, <laughs> I think as, as most, you know, as most of your listeners will probably know, you know, the vast majority of uh, animal products today come from animals raised on industrial factory farms. So right. some, you know, upward of 97% of products, depending on the animal industry we're talking about, um, come from animals raised in, you know, tight confinement where they've, uh, you know, never been uh, given access to the outdoors, where they aren't allowed or able to exhibit uh, natural behaviors. Um, and this is really, you know, what sort of current situation um, is about as bad as it gets. I mean, maybe it can get, get worse in some dystopian uh, future, but, um, you know, really right now we're we're putting animals in in just about the worst possible conditions for them. Right. So when we think about what um, what a, a high welfare system would look like, you know, it would, it would include things like um, healthy genetics that allow animals to live, um, live lives without, without suffering. Would allow, it would include um, housing systems that allow them to experience natural uh, conditions and uh, exhibit natural behaviors. It would likely be animals raised you know, entirely outdoors on pasture, especially for, for ruminants. Um, so, you know, for, for each sort of species, the system probably looks a little bit different, um, but it really is 180 degree different from, from what we are doing today. Right. And, um, you know, one thing that we've talked about before that I'm really interested in, um, that you just mentioned is genetics. I think like in that kind of, um, picture you just painted of these ways that, um, animal agriculture would be more humane, um, a lot of those things people kind of understand intuitively, like animals should be, have space to move around, right? Or, um, Mm -hmm. cows should eat grass. They should be outside on pasture. Um, but I don't know that a lot of people think about the genetics of animals um, in this conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about why that is so important? Yeah, absolutely. So this is most evident in the poultry industry, though it's also true in, um, in other industries, especially things mm. like dairy cattle um, in, in pigs as well. Um, you know, but for the last, and this really sort of goes back to, um, you know, American agricultural history and, and looking at the changes that were started in the, mostly in the 50s uh, okay. during the sort of agricultural revolution, the green revolution. Um, and what, you know, what we did is prioritized um, Productivity in a fairly narrow sense uh, over um, over other values, over animal health, over 
um, uh, you know, meat quality over, over a variety of things. And, mm-hmm. and we've, in, in poultry for the last 60 years, um, been breeding, especially broiler chickens, but egg-laying hens as well, to grow faster, produce more eggs uh, with less feed in a shorter amount of time. Right. So, you know, 19, 1960, um, you know, the vast majority of the birds we raised uh, for meat grew to a mature size in, let's say, 120 days. Uh, today, the average life of a broiler chicken is somewhere around 38 days, and they grow to about the same weight. So a 4x increase in uh, growth rates. And, yeah, you know, while so on crazy. one hand, that's sort of an amazing, amazing accomplishment yeah. of, of, you know, agricultural efficiency, um, the outcome of that has been expensive. And it's been, it's been costly for, um, for animals, of course, you know, the, the cost on the, on the birds' bodies has been significant. Now you open any trade journal in the poultry industry and you read about, woody breast syndrome or white striping or a new one I've heard called a um, spaghetti muscle. <laughs> and these are describing muscle myopathies um, that are appearing in uh, poultry um, because effectively they are growing too fast. Yeah. They're growing faster than, uh, you know, the, than their bodies can, their bodies can put keep vascular up, tissue into them. Yeah. yeah. So they have this necrotic tissue in them. This, this cost the poultry industry, I read a recent study that the spaghetti muscle is costing the industry 200, somewhere around $200 million a year to identify and remove from the poultry system. Wow. Um, you know, this is a direct result of, uh, of, of fast growth. Yeah. Um, but the effects are, are, are broader than that. I mean, you know, we, I think many of your listeners will have heard about uh, you know, antibiotics in the agricultural system and the just tremendous amount of antibiotics we use in the poultry system. Mm-hmm. Um, much of that is, is because of fast growth. Um, you know, the, the, the rise of uh, antibiotics and antibiotic use in the poultry industry uh, really coincided with and, and ran parallel to um, efforts that were being made to breed birds uh, that grew more quickly. Uh, and they really became essential. Antibiotics became essential in the poultry industry uh, mm. because birds had, as they grew faster, basically less um, less strong immune systems. Huh. You know, they they were putting their energy into these birds are now putting their energy exclusively into growing you know large breasts uh, as fast as possible, and they're not putting genetic energy into building strong muscles or building healthy immune systems. Right. Um, and so because of that, you know, the poultry industry really relies on. Uh, antibiotics and other antimicrobials to keep that system propped up. Uh, and that has a huge cost for humans. I mean, the CDC's estimate of the number of people that die every year because of, um, you know, superbugs, basically antibiotic-resistant bacteria is, you know, 40,000. You know, and if you if you cost that out, it's costing us, you know, billions of dollars a year. Mm. Um, and so, you know, this has been a really radical shift in the agricultural industry that's happened really just within a generation. Yeah. Um, you know, most folks who are, you know, raising animals today, let's say they're, you know, getting ready to retire, they're 70 now. Um, you know, when they started in, you know, 4-H, um, you know, what are called now heritage breeds, uh, these would have been the only ones that anyone raised. Mm-hmm. Um so it's a it's a really radical transformation that's happened uh, in a generation. Right. Well, and I I mean so it's causing all these problems and, but it's, to me, it seems like there are the least, um, there, there's not a lot of change happening in terms of, uh, 
shifting to birds that have these older genetics, like heritage birds, um, it seems like a lot of the changes that are being made to make poultry, um, the poultry industry, like, better, you know, in in different ways, Mm -hmm. are more focused on things like giving them more space or um, Mm -hmm. access. So, I mean, are you seeing any meaningful changes in terms of more people actually raising birds with better genetics? I, I, I have, I'm just curious, you know? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, excitingly for the first time really in the last, you know, 60 years, um, the poultry industry, because of pressure from, um, consumers and, uh, and activists like, like us, um, have, gotten both poultry companies and major buyers um, to uh, commit to raising uh, and and using uh, uh, products that come from birds uh, that have have healthier genetics, have been given a little bit more space, have been given environmental enrichments, um, and really for the first time have genetic welfare on the table. So hmm. in 2016, uh, Global Animal Partnership um, which is the sort of largest uh, animal welfare certification in the U.S., mm-hmm. uh, committed to um, phasing out the fastest-growing birds by 2024 and requiring that all of the farms that they certify uh, use uh, healthier genetics. Um, at the same time, some major food companies, folks like Starbucks and Compass Group and Burger King uh, and you know about 100 others, have also now committed that by 2024, they will only source chicken products from uh, birds who have improved genetics. Huh. Um, and, and this is a you know, really exciting trend. And um, the, you know, some of the major poultry companies now have uh, indicated their willingness to move in this direction, um, the largest of which is, uh, is Purdue Farms, which uh, I think in 20, either 17 or 2018, um, publicly committed that they would um, raise slower-growing birds for this new market. Um, so this is this is really you know a ground shift um, yeah. in uh, in the industry and in uh, I think a, you know incredible achievement of the farm animal protection movement um, to put genetic um, genetic health onto the agenda. Are they, and when you say like improved genetics or slower growing birds, so these, the, the chickens mm-hmm. that we're t- talking about, when you think about a change that Purdue is going to make or that Starbucks is going to buy, those are not going to be like heritage breeds, like the, the right. truly heritage birds. They're just going to be slightly more, um, slightly slower growing. Is that right? That's right. Okay. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, the details uh, of what exactly um, slower growth means is, is still being figured out right now. Global Animal Partnership is working um, or commissioned a, a, a really large um, scientific research study. Uh, they've partnered with the University of Guelph in Canada to evaluate uh, the welfare of dozens of different um, strains and heritage breeds to evaluate, um, you know, really what it, what it means to have healthier genetics and what strains um, that are on the market today um, should qualify as having higher welfare uh, genetics, and it's likely that um, you know that will that will be those birds will be slightly slower growing than what the industry uses today. Um, they'll have you know, and this would be the requirement that they have better outcomes, that they have you know healthier, you know lower mortality and healthier legs, and you know a variety of sort of health and welfare indicators. Um, but those will not be anything close to um, 
uh, you know, heritage breeds. Right. Um, and excitingly, we, um, we, we helped uh, University of Guelph get um, some heritage breeds, some traditional heritage breeds into their study. So we'll have really good comparative data of, you know, basically what kinds of welfare is possible um, from these sort of different, um, different strains. And we'll, we'll much, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll, for the first time, I think, better understand um, the relationship between things like growth rates and welfare outcomes. Right. And um, the, the Global Animal Partnership Standards, though, did you help develop those? Was Farm Forward involved with that? Yeah, so Farm Forward is on the, on the board of, of GAP, um, along with there are six other uh, board members that include representatives from uh, both the farmed animal protection community, but also the farming community and, and the, the food industry. Uh, so folks from Compass Group, but then also folks from, you know, Nyman Ranch and a large beef company and um, Compassion World Farming. You know, so it's, mm. it's a mix of, uh, of, you know, quote unquote interests. Um, but I think really the shared interest of everyone on the board is to um, improve conditions for farmed animals. Yeah. Uh, Well, and how do you know, like how widely um, adopted those practices are at this point? This is a a really exciting sort of growth market. Um, Gap, I think the last data that I saw that Gap certifies about 400 million animals per year, where they certify farms where about 400 million animals per year are raised. Um, So that's a, you know, it's a fairly small, you know, and and most of those are are chickens uh, raised for meat. and that's a fairly small percentage of the market. You know, the U.S. raises about nine billion chickens per year. Oh my God! Um, but, you know, the four hundred million number is is growing, and yeah. uh, I expect will grow pretty substantially by twenty twenty four when um, we see you know the these corporate commitments from these large uh, buyers yeah. um, going into effect. Um, so it's a it's an exciting it's an exciting space, and I think you know even if you know if, even if it's ten percent of the market, if GAP certified products are ten percent of the market. Uh, by 2024, that will be a huge achievement um, that, you know, we will have shifted, um, you know, one of the largest agricultural markets um, yeah. in a matter of eight years um, uh, towards better conditions for, for chickens. Right. It's so crazy when you hear those numbers. It's like, you said 400 yeah. million, you know, you said 400 million. I'm like, wow. Yeah. And they're like, oh, 9 billion chickens that we eat. Like, yeah. it's just crazy to think yeah, on that really, scale. It's really hard to wrap our heads around. Yeah. And, and then, you know, you look at the numbers globally and then you add in things like the number of uh, fish, both farmed and wild caught, um, which really dwarfs all other uh, animal uh, animals that are eaten. And it's, it's really sort of hard to picture. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Um, and those, the, the gap standards, are those, um, pretty much like an industry standard that like, I, I never see mm-hmm. a gap standard on like a product. Like it's not really a consumer facing seal, is it? It, it, it is a consumer facing uh. seal right now. M- most of the products that are, um, that are labeled that have the gaps, uh, certified logo on it are sold, uh, in whole foods. Okay. And partly a historical remnant of the fact that the certification uh, was started or was was sort of supported in its infancy um, by Whole Foods. Um, and Whole Foods still requires that mm-hmm. um, all uh, fresh and frozen meat and poultry that's sold in Whole Foods stores be certified by GAP. Um, but mm-hmm. increasingly, we're seeing the GAP logo outside of the uh, outside of Whole Foods, in you know, in on products uh, sold by other retailers. So, um, if you're in on the West Coast where I am, 
for example, there's a, a poultry company called Mary's Chicken. Um, they're available in you know every grocery store effectively. Okay. Um, you know, Kroger's and all the big um, the big chain retailers. Um, and those products are um, certified by GAP. Many of them currently don't have the logo on it, um, but GAP is excitingly, I think, going to be debuting some some changes to their program where I expect that consumers will start to see uh, the Global Animal Partnership logo much more widely in the coming years. Interesting. Um, so we need to take a quick commercial break. Um, so we're going to, we're going to do that. And then, um, when we come back, um, I want to get a little bit more into, um, some of the work you're doing around institutional buying. I think, um, that'll be really interesting to just talk about changing agricultural systems and, um, using the market to do so. Um, so we're going to hear a quick word from a sponsor and we'll be right back. This episode is presented by The Brooklyn Kitchen, a recreational cooking school on a mission to change the world by teaching people how to cook like grown-ups. The Brooklyn Kitchen began in 2006 when two creative home chefs, Taylor Erkinen and Harry Rosenblum, recognized an opportunity to create a community space with approachable, hands-on cooking classes and inventive culinary experiences. Taylor and Harry believe that cooking is a daily practice in creative problem-solving. They bring this ethos to The Brooklyn Kitchen, a cooking school that fosters community and redefines home cooking for everyone. Now located at Sunset Park's Industry City, the Brooklyn Kitchen hosts a range of public and private cooking classes, corporate team parties, pop-up dinners, and tasting events for cooks of all levels. Learn more at thebrooklynkitchen.com. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Jenna Liute, and I'm the host of Eating Matters here on HRN. Join me as I talk to food systems experts about the issues that shape our experiences of buying, cooking, and eating food. You can find Eating Matters wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. All right, we're back. This is Lisa Held. You're listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio. Um, I'm here with Andrew from Farm Forward. We've been talking about animal agriculture. Um, we got into some chicken genetics in the first part of the show, of course, <laughs> um, and um, gap standards. And so um, one thing that I wanted to make sure that I asked you about um, that we didn't talk about yet is um, you have this program that you're calling the Leadership Circle that is... Um, harnessing sort of institutional buying as a way to um, change animal agriculture. Can you tell me a little bit more about what that is and how it works? Yeah, happy to. So the Leadership Circle, exactly as you said, uh, aims to leverage the buying power of institutional um, food service companies uh, and institutional buyers, folks like universities and corporate cafes and public schools and hospitals and um, to, um, I mean, change the food system is the big picture, of course, but the, right. the real sort of specific is to um, get these institutions to commit to sourcing either higher welfare animal products or to reducing their overall animal product consumption. Um, and we see that sort of what we describe as less and better approach to animal products as, as working really hand in hand. Um, institutions that join the leadership circle 
commit to transitioning at least one of their animal products to certified higher welfare sources, sources that have, you know, certifications like Global Animal Partnership or Certified Humane or Animal Welfare Approved. Um, and, you know, the work that we do with them is, is really about helping them transition their supply chain and uh, help them evolve their dining program uh, to accommodate um, these new products. Right. So uh, sometimes that means, you know, uh, introducing them to, uh, to suppliers. Sometimes that means helping them enter into group purchasing agreements so they can get volume discounts. Sometimes it means helping them think about dining strategies um, like the flipped plate that's, that's being pioneered by the Culinary Institute of America um, that will allow them to, you know, sort of stay within their budgets um, while sourcing higher welfare uh, products, which often uh, cost, cost more. Mm. Um, there are about 20 members of the leadership circle nationally right now. The program's about three years old. And these are institutions like um, University of California, Berkeley, and Harvard Business School, and Villanova. And uh, excitingly, we just had a, uh, a restaurant chain called Burgerville, which is in the Pacific Northwest, uh, join. Um, and all of these uh, institutions are you know, making commitments to higher welfare practices and committing to transition their supply chains. Right. Um, and we're seeing that you know, that kind of demand, you know, when we're talking about, you know, not just you buying a, a dozen eggs every week, but an institution like Burgerville, which buys about a million eggs a year for their, you know, roughly 50 locations in the Northwest, um, you know, can have a huge impact in creating markets for uh, better animal welfare practices effectively. Right. Um, and, and at that, seen, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, jump in. <laughs> No, no, definitely. Well, I, I was going to say, you know, y- you mentioned the scale. This is a lot of meat we're talking about. Um, do the farms uh-huh. exist for them to source at that scale um, this better meat? Yeah, that's so. That's a really good question. That's the sort of important work I think that the, the leadership circle helps do. Um, you know, we've had a, a real a real split in the ag, the ag industry as, as we sort of talked about the history of the poultry industry. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what we've told farmers for the last, you know, really 40, 40 years, you know, certainly since 1980, there was a famous USDA, um, head of the USDA who said basically farmers need to get big or get out. And oh, yes. so we've had Earl. a big sort <laughs> he of, comes up a yeah, lot. exactly, <laughs> exactly. Notorious. Now. Yeah. Um, so we've, we've had, you know, this sort of bifurcation where we've either have very small producers who are selling mostly at, you know, farmers markets and to local restaurants. Um, or we have the huge agricultural players. We have Tyson and Cargill and JBS. Um, and what what's missing from that is what's called the sort of missing middle. Um, these are producers who are using uh, better practices and are sort of differentiating their their products by offering um, you know better environmental conditions, better working conditions, uh, better treatment of animals. Um, you, you might see these products as you know pasture raised eggs in the grocery store mm-hmm. or um, grass-fed, grass-finished beef, um, and increasingly, this this middle, mar- this sort of missing middle is mm-hmm. is is growing. It is no longer missing um, because of demand from both consumers, but also institutional buyers. Um, new companies are are springing up onto the market, or um, existing companies are creating new um, you know new brands, new lines um, mm-hmm. that use better agricultural practices. Um, so just a couple of exa- quick examples. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, a couple of years ago, 
a company called Vital Farms. I think they're about 10 years old now. They yeah, started out I've of, actually um, been to one of, the of their farms. Um, I went, yeah, <laughs> you have. Oh, that's I exciting. have, yeah, um, <laughs> last year. Awesome. So, yeah, so they, they started selling pasture-raised eggs in the grocery store. Um, they're now nationally available in, you know, Safeways, and they're selling, I think, even in some, you know, Walmarts, and, you know, they're really um, uh, just sort of popping up everywhere. Yeah. Um, last year, they launched a, 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 a line of products specifically for food service. So they're, they're, they're working on things like liquid eggs, uh, which are uh, basically you just crack eggs and put them in a bag, and that's what the food service companies use. Mm. Um, and, you know, until, you know, Vital started offering these products, there weren't certified pasture-raised liquid eggs on the market. Right. Um, just this week, a new company uh, launched uh, called Cook's Venture, and their, their goal is um, specifically about scaling regenerative agricultural practices, and they're starting with pasture-raised gap step four slower-growing poultry. Um, right, that's the, the, the by Blue the, Apron guy, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Matt, Matt uh, uh, Wadiak, who was, was one of the co-founders of Blue Apron. And yeah, so, I've been seeing stuff you know, about these, that. I these companies are. It. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I'm just. I, I've I saw some information about Cook's Venture, and I I was curious. Yeah. Um, I haven't you know actually looked into it yet, but it's interesting. Yeah, so it's a it's a partnership uh, with a with a company that um, uh, that had existed in Arkansas uh, called Crystal Lake Farms. Mm. Um, and they're sort of building a new, uh, both a new brand, but also a new infrastructure. And, and what, what Cook's Ventures is, is able to do or has begun to do um, is build the kind of infrastructure that you need in order to sell at a large scale, both at a food service scale and at, you know, sort of a national retail scale. So, um, you know, build things like slaughterhouses and feed mills and, you know, cracking plants for your liquid eggs, like I talked about with Vital. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, those are the things that have really been dominated by the biggest industrial players. Uh, but now, um, as the market demand has increased for, for these better products, um, you know, the, this kind of infrastructure is being built by um, these more sustainable producers. Um, and so it's, it's a really exciting time from my perspective because we're seeing um, the result of the, you know, sort of consumer demand um, shifting the agricultural market. Yeah. Well, and I mean, so companies like Vital Farms or, or Cook's Venture, I know they're just starting out, but they're kind of starting from this place of like, we want to do things um, in a more sustainable, um, humane way. And then they're creating the infrastructure, mm-hmm. right? And it's sort of starting from mm-hmm. the from the ground up. Um, but a company like Burgerville that is signing on to change their sourcing is is really different mm-hmm. and i'm curious how like how are you getting a company like that to make that commitment yeah it's a, it's a good question so um burgerville you know most of the the members that have committed so far are ones that i would describe as sort of industry leading in some way you know these are folks who are um who are thinking broadly about um about the value and the role that they play in their communities uh, beyond just providing, you know, meals to students or uh, hamburgers to diners. Um, you know, Burgerville um, has had a sort of more holistic perspective of, of the role that they play in their community from everything from, you know, labor to, um, to the kinds of products they source, as far as I can tell from their inception. Um, and they're, they're not new to, um, in this case, um, sustainable sourcing. They've been buying um, certified humane eggs for almost 10 years or maybe a little bit more than 10 years. And so 
for them to join the leadership circle was was very natural. It was easy for them to make that commitment because it was already very much part of their DNA. Um, and for companies like Burgerville, who are um, you know evolving with consumer interest, they're they're also sort of interested in in continuous improvement. They want to they want to continue to sort of push what's possible, um, uh, both for their consumers but also for their suppliers. So, um, you know, they were one of the companies that committed to by 2024 uh, um, selling only poultry products that come from uh, slower growing birds. Um, they're also um, you know innovating for consumers. They're thinking about uh, you know as as the consumer trends shift towards uh, more plant plant-based or plant-forward uh, meals. They're you know, starting to offer and, and have for a while plant-based burgers. They're now testing, I heard, um, uh, non-dairy ice cream in, in some of their restaurants. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think this, this is part of, um, and the sort of leadership circle commitment was very much part of um, their broader um, corporate ethos. Okay. Uh, it, was pretty, it was natural for them. So you're um, really... But some of the... Inst- yeah, sorry. Yeah, as I say, some of the institutions, it, it's more challenging. You know, when we when we go to uh, you know a, a large um, food service company, you know, many many are not interested in in joining or, or aren't willing to make a commitment to shift 100 percent of uh, their supply chain. Um, and in some cases, we're you know we're happy to work with folks who are making smaller changes, uh, who are making you know sort of baby steps or transitioning their supply chain over a longer period of time. Um, and for, for many, that's, that's sort of what's possible right now. Um, you know, what our, our sort of goal with the leadership circle is to, to highlight those folks who are um, making much, much bigger, bolder steps in this direction, mm-hmm. um, in part just to demonstrate what's possible. Um, you know, I think, you know, in, in every industry, but I think food in particular, we sort of get, um, and, and folks in the industry sort of get um, stuck in a rut a little bit about, you know, they, they think they know what's possible and, They've been doing things a certain way for a long time, and so right. uh, when you say when you say to a burger company or a uh, you know a, a university, hey, you should be um, serving pasture raised chicken uh, or grass fed grass finished beef, and they're currently buying commodity products and have been for 20 years. Um, you know, they can, it can be a bit of a quizzical look. Um, <laughs> or like, so, I'm sure you get like the one of the first questions is how much is it going to cost, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Um, cost is always, um, you know, cost is always a, a part of the conversation. And, um, you know, what we say is that um, we have to look at costs holistically and we have to pay a fair price for, for animal products. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, part of the reason, similarly, part of the reason we talk about less and better meat and more plant-forward foods is because plant-forward foods are more cost-effective. And so, you know, as uh, as institutions invest in um, higher welfare, higher quality animal products that cost more money. Um, you know, one of the ways just sort of practically that they can balance out that cost increase is by um, serving small, smaller portion sizes or just serving less animal products and more, more plant forward protein. Right. Yeah, that's right. It's that le- the eat less meat, but better. That's sort of a, I feel like that, that is kind of like taking hold as something that you hear a lot Um Absolutely. Right. Like, yeah, I mean, a a few years ago, I would have, I would have said, oh, this is sort of, you know, it's a fringe idea. And, you know, some institutions are talking about it. You know, now I um, talk with, you know, supply chain people or corporate sustainability people of, you know, major food service companies, and and they don't bat an eye when I uh, talk about less and better 
um, you know, I think there was this pushback, especially on um, on less. Um, you know, this idea that um, you know we're taking taking things away from people, I think, was sort of a um, a hard a hard <laughs> um, concept for folks. But I think what what's become clear with the sort of plant forward dining trend is that there are just a lot of really exciting, really delicious, really healthy plant based foods mm. uh, and new plant based products that um, are getting consumers really excited and. Um, it makes that transition then to less and better seem much less intimidating for food service companies and, yeah. and food service operators. Um, you also, know, they see that you know millennials are way more interested in diverse diets and have a totally different relationship with food than the generation uh, you know ahead of them. And so, um, you know, I think many companies now see um, sort of plant plant based dining, for example, as um, not just sort of satisfying the fringe vegans, maybe, but as, you know, needing to be a core part of their dining strategy. Yeah. I was just going to say also good meat tastes better. So <laughs> that's, that's, yeah, that's absolutely. Helpful. I mean, you know, one of the things that I hear from, you know, uh, folks like Coke Spencer, but also, you know, uh, ranchers who are doing grass-fed, mm-hmm. grass-finished beef or pasture-raised heritage pork. Um, is that the you know the reason I think in part that those products are catching on, is, especially among chefs, is because those products just taste way better, um, and there's new research showing that those products are also healthier. And right. They have you know totally different levels of protein. They have um, you know different ratios of omegas. Fats, they have yeah. you know way more nutrients, micro and macro, and so they're just these are healthier products, and, and it shouldn't be surprising. Um, you know, that a product that comes from a sick animal is not going to be as good as a product that comes from a healthy animal. Right. That, that just shouldn't, that makes a lot of intuitive sense. Yeah, it does kind of, <laughs> it, it, a lot of things like that, I feel like in agriculture, it's like you, you know, everything is part of this system. And when you think about it holistically, it, it all kind of makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. Um, all right. Well, we have to wrap up, but um, if people want to find out more about um, ethical animal agriculture and what you do, where can they find you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they can find us uh, on the web at farmforward.com. They can find us on uh, social media, Facebook, uh, Instagram, and Twitter. Uh, Farm Forward is the handle across all of those. And if folks are interested specifically in the leadership circle, they can go to farmforward.com backslash leadership circle. Great. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks, Lisa. I really enjoyed the conversation. All right. And thank you all so much for listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe to the podcast, rate it, and share it. I'll see you next Wednesday. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right-hand side of our homepage. Thanks for listening.